This podcast is brought to you by the Handshake Agency Network. Hello out there and welcome back to another episode of The Green Room presented by the Handshake Agency. I'm your host Tiana Speeder. Thank you for joining me, whether it's the first time you're having a crack at an episode or you've been here probably longer than I have. Either way, it is awesome to have you with me. If you missed out on last week's episode, I had the great pleasure to have Geordie and Scarlett from Indie Poppers San Cisco join me in person for a chat about being back on the road and they have still had to dodge some COVID issues along the way, but the pair shared some colourful tales about the lead up to their recent album Between You and Me in amongst being on the road. From indie pop gems to some new wave nostalgia, my guest on today's episode hails from an extremely influential Aussie band that defied all expectations with perfect blow-waved hair and a heap of synthy swagger. Finding themselves ricocheted from the unknown to infamy in the blink of an eye, Pseudo Echo found themselves labelled as one of the biggest acts in the country at the time, when the world was already falling head over heels for Aussies and, in particular, Australian rock. But while their electro-stylings and crooning swoon is now stuff of legends, it was back in the 80s that this young group, barely a year into their career, had Molly Meldrum casually catch a Pseudo Echo set and inadvertently propel this unsigned group to stardom, offering them a coveted slot on Countdown and bringing a neon flourish to the world that has echoed now for close to four decades. Like many bands, the road to success wasn't without its hurdles, and at the end of the 80s, the group suddenly disbanded amid a fourth record deal. And it wasn't just the actual band that seemed lost at the time, but also the demos intended for the fourth album, with the box of cassette demos seemingly lost into the void, never to be seen again. Or were they? Come join me today chatting with Pseudo Echo frontman Brian Cannum chatting about the incredible journey to releasing 1990 The Lost Album demos, as well as returning to live shows in 2021. Well, Brian, it is absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. I know you have just come off dealing with yet another lockdown in Victoria, so there's been a fair bit going on in your world, but a treat to grab you today and thank you so much for coming on the Green Room podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. (laughs) Well, despite the unexpected lockdown that you have just gone through, I know there is a hell of a lot more going on in Pseudo Echo World and for yourself right now. Most recently, the amazing news that you have just released an incredible brand new album, 1990 The Lost Album Demos. But let's come back to that in just a moment. You will also be hitting the road, bringing a live show to everyone, which is such a foreign concept for a lot of us after what we've just been through. But yeah. Let's go. Let's dive straight into the album. How does it feel to actually have finally released this incredible time capsule after such a long period of time? It's been a few decades in the making. Just a few, yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite an experience because I'd kind of, um, I'd given up on it. Uh, I mean, you know, back in 89, you know, I was requested to send in some tapes for, for they were initially written for the fourth Pseudo Echo album, but then because there was a surprise element in our last meeting where the band just dispersed and that was the end of that, um, I was then sort of notified and and, uh, um, and requested this, you know, my songs that I had written for the fourth album. So they were considering it for a solo album, I guess, um, and that seemed to be the consensus. So there was a, sort of some urgency to it, I guess, while, while the uh, striking while the iron's hot, so to speak. And so 
to waste no time, I just grabbed my one and only master tape. I don't know why I only had one, but, um, well, I thought I had one, and um, rushed it into the office and said, look, can you guys duplicate this? Um, but it's my only copy. Do not lose it. And I was reassured it wouldn't be lost. Mm-hmm. But, um, however, after a few days when I tried again to get the tape, you know, I sort of fobbed off a bit and then, you know, weeks, months, and the literally years and I was still calling every now and then but then I just gave up on it it was just gone I I don't know where it went how it got lost or anything but it was lost so this is like several years of my work that I'd written um you know in anticipating this fourth album so I just moved on I got into production and different different field in the music biz and um fast forward 30 odd years um Occasionally I would remember some of those songs, little bits. I'd just sort of be on the piano and I'd start playing it. And Raquel, uh, you know, with her manager ear, would always be going, what's that tune? That's that's a great song. And um, I'd say, oh, this is one of the ones that I've been telling you about that was lost, so I can't remember the rest of it. I don't have the lyrics written down. So this went on for a while. And then one day, you know, it was another song I was playing, same response, you know, pops into the room, quick, what's that song, you know? And um, then we got talking about these, the tape, and, and um, you know, Raquel said, are you sure you didn't back it up or anything? I said, oh, look, I, I didn't back it up because I would have it now and, and the songs were with me. And um, I said, but it's not like me not to back it up, but I don't think I did and I don't have it and I can't find it. And then she said, what about that big box of tapes we found while we are moving? <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, okay. But there were a lot of cassettes in there, lots of cassettes. And, and ironically, lots of them were master tapes. They were labelled, the word scribbled on in terrible handwriting, master and not much else so when you find you know 20 tapes written master tape you still you still got a bit of a challenge ahead of you so you know we got an old tape deck hooked it up and then for the next few weeks I reckon we went through songs and then just one day one of the songs that I wrote the first song I think was called just your day came on and I just went oh my god this is this is the song and then you know fast forward here's another one and then fast forward again here's another one so we listened right through it and um, then we were, we were talking about it, what to do with it. You know, Raquel said, you have to release this. Year. It's, it's, in, it's gold. It's a time capsule of your band's history. And I said, oh, no, I'd have to re-record it all and it will take me forever. And, and, and then, you know, Raquel said, oh, really, oh, no, no, it's got to be like as is, you know, authentic. Um, meanwhile, the tape is rewinding at this stage, the cassette, you know, and that's all good. And all of a sudden I look at it and I see one of the spools stops. And the other one's still going, and, I, and that's not a good sign to look at it because if that's how they should go together. So I quickly hit the stop and ejected it, and then and the tape was <clears throat> basically ingested into the machine. You know, I, I, it was an old machine. I didn't even service it before I played it. I just grabbed it. And um, we managed to, to sort of painstakingly get the tape out, use the old pen method and scroll it, you know, get it back into the cassette without any creases or breaks or anything so it's a miracle that we saved I, I can't believe we did after you know what what you know it's a very fragile tape so we pretty much straight away got it digitized and uh, didn't take any more chances with the cassette deck and um it's it's that's it that's it we just we just remastered it to get the level up and get it all consistent mm. we didn't change anything we couldn't mix it because it was already mixed and and they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're rough but they're sort of highly produced rough demos. Oh. So uh, it is what it is. 
I mean, for most of us, when we pack, you know, we find, you know, the jeans that we can no longer fit into or the plates that we should have thrown out 10 years ago, like to stumble on yeah. something like that. And to, for the tenacity to get through all of that is just mind blowing. And how on brand for Pseudo Echo as such a seminal act in the 80s to have an album out in 2021 that got chewed up by a cassette tape that you're literally screwing in on a cassette tape. Like, it couldn't be yeah. more on brand. Seriously, it's incredible. Yeah, it was meant to be. This this uh, this album was just searching to be uh, released. Yeah. And what do you think it is? I mean, as a band, as Pseudo Echo, as we all know, you were so massive in an era where Australians were being embraced by the rest of the world, but a lot of it was the Aussie pub, you know, the pub rock bands and this kind yeah, of thing. And here yeah. comes Pseudo Echo with your gloss and your new wave glamour. <laughs> What do you yeah. think it is that is still resonating about this sound and this time capsule in a very different era and very different decade too? I think we found our, our thing. We found our own sound. Even though we were greatly influenced by our peers at the time, um, <clears throat> I think for me I never really set out to sound like any one particular of my idols and influences. It was always a very vague cross-section. So that was a good thing because I found my own thing in doing so. And I think because we had our own sound, our own look, um, we had our own material, uh, it, it, was, it, it was something, it was a stamp. It, it, was, it was our thing. And so it stayed our thing. We didn't, we didn't lose it. We, uh, we hung on to it. And, um, you know, even in the recent albums that I've released over the last 10 years or so, um, I've always thought about the heritage of the band and its its, its brand, its its flavour, and and tried to retain that. And um, you know, I, I have this thing where I always uh, go back to the past and get some element or elements and bring them in to the current album. I'll, I'll always get an old song or a something, some lyric or some part or some sound that'll make an appearance again, and it, it sort of just marries everything together. Mm. Well, it's it's always you always know when you're listening to a pseudo echo song, which is incredible. So that fact that explains why we all kind of yeah. can pick it from a mile away. So that's fantastic to know. And I guess coming into this era of what we've just been through as well, did the whole pandemic thing actually impact? I mean, we have waited over three decades for this, so obviously an extra twelve months of insanity probably isn't. It's a bit of a drop in the ocean compared to the weight you've had, yeah. but did that actually impact any plans, whether it's current plans or long-term plans of how you saw this album coming to life? Well, well ironically, it was it was this lockdown, the first lockdown, that basically um, enabled us to have the time to think about this stuff and, and, and for me to start playing it on piano and, and start thinking, well, is it there? And then when we found it, we also had the time then to put into it and go, we need... You know, this needs to be released. We need to to write some uh, some story about it so people know what happened and why it happened. And it all just fell into place. You know, we started recalling stories of how it came to this point, how we got to the point of us going in different directions, how we got to the point of the band breaking up and how we got to the point of coming back and, um, and where it is today. So all these things happened during the pandemic. So, you know... Uh, it's, a, it's bad, but it wasn't all bad. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. If there's something good to come out of it and you guys obviously turned yeah. it massively to an advantage and yeah. everyone else benefited too. So, I mean, in a way, it's the good with the bad. It swings and roundabouts. But, 
Yeah, what a journey. And I mean, I know you've gone into it. I've seen on your social media, you guys have released quite very personal accounts about how it all happened. I mean, you're on the brink of a fourth album. You're also then disbanding. You're in your late 20s. There's solo albums on the horizon potentially as well. But to come that full circle, I also saw you guys put up a very, very nostalgic interview. I think it was back in 1985 when you guys were first or, you know, being chatted to just after the whole countdown scenario. I mean, that in itself bypassed and also fast-tracked so much for it. But I'm quite interested to know because I've read you say a few other things about that era. How did it feel firstly to have that amazing opportunity presented to you at such a very influential time that countdown was having on the world? But it showcased your potential, but was it, that positive thing for you at the time? Like, were you able to see it as that? And did you actually appreciate it for that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, um, Countdown and, and all those music programs back in the day, they were absolute inspirations to us. You know, um, I, I would watch Countdown, um, you know, my family would sit around and say, oh, you, you could do that, Brian. You know, your, your band's as good as that. <laughs> so um, there was always this encouragement and, and it was like a goal that... Um, I, I don't think I sort of just thought have to be on Countdown, have to be on Countdown. I just, I loved making music. I, lo- I loved having a band and that's what I did. And it was just a, a coincidence that there was someone we knew that went to school with us, that knew Molly, that somehow got him a tape and got him to come to a show. The next thing he's backstage at our gig. It's like, it's, it's surreal, you know. And and then, you know, within a week he's inviting us on the show unofficially against, you know, protocol of the station. And it was like okay, well, cool. It just all sort of seemed to happen and fall into place. We never really questioned it. But um, it, it was an incredible time. We just we had a fantastic opportunity and um, and we took it by the horns. We just went, we're going with this. You know, we're, we're not going to stop and say, no, we're too cool to do that or this is, you know, we're not selling out. We just, we went for it. Mm, and I really like what you said in that interview. I mean, you were so young and you put it so perfectly. You said it presented you guys as a finished product. I mean, here you guys are no record, no record label Mm. happening, really kind of not flouting the rules, but obviously that right place, right time, everything's marrying up and I feel like Mm. it was clearly meant to be. Like things like that don't just happen. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many coincidences and um, strange cross crossings of paths with uh, not only Molly but with with all the people in the industry. Um, We just kept strange coincidences kept happening, you know, like I – it's it's Molly who played the original version of Funky Town to me in 1979, 1980, something like that. Oh, my God. I used to go to this club and Molly was the resident DJ there. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And I I used to just watch. I still like to watch the dance floor, see what excited people, listen to the, the grooves, listen to the textures and I just took mental notes. That's what I did, you know, every week I would go to this club and just and just listen and observe. Somebody once introduced me to Molly and, you know, I didn't want to be a fanboy or anything, so I just said hi and that was it. And he kind of probably knew me as this shy kid on the sidelines, never dancing, never talking, just kind of listening and watching. And so when he came to see Pseudo Echo for the first time, he didn't know it was my band. He just came in, saw the band and went, that's that kid. <laughs> That's the little kid that I, that I see every week, you know, oh and it, it was strange. Stick around after this short break as Brian takes us on a journey through healthy band rivalries, embracing the digital age, and how he dodged a job at the bank before becoming a bona fide superstar. All that and more in just a bit. Hi everyone, 
Beth Privatelli from the GWS Giants here. I'm an Aussie rules diehard, but you won't find a better sports podcast than the take with NRL legend Willie Mason and some bloke called Ian. Join Willie and that other bloke every week as he takes you through everything happening in the sports world and sorts your tips out. GWS for the win, obviously. Check out all episodes of The Take presented by the Handshake Agency Network via thepodcasts.com.au. I mean, you guys, as I said, like it was obviously in an era where the Australian flavour was very much geared to the guitars and the sweaty, all that kind of rock and roll stuff. But Mm. you essentially came to become one of the best known Australian bands in an era where In Excess were absolutely thrown down all over the world as well. And what I find interesting about that era, and I'd love to know if this is correct, is that there was a lot of talk of a lot of rivalry between bands that were of a very similar vein. I mean, you had Kids in the Kitchen (laughs) happening at the same era, but you went on to play with them later on in life. Like, how authentic was that rivalry? Was there actually any of that going on? Were you aware of it, or was that a complete beat-up that everyone just wanted to make true? Uh, uh, There was probably a healthy rivalry. Um, We were all good friends. We... um, we all looked out for each other and we all started out together and, you know, each one would call up the other band and, hey, can you guys do a gig with us? Do you, do you want to do this? And we didn't really care who was who was on first or second or it, it probably by the time we all had record deals and songs in the charts, it got a little bit more competitive. Yeah. <laughs> but, but nothing bad, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we often all toured together and, and we loved it, you know. We'd be, oh, how's your song going? It's going great. And how's yours going? Oh, that's going great too. And so it was good. Yeah, well, and I think that's an interesting sidestep, I guess, to the current era of music as someone who has been in the industry for so long now and coming from a lot of camaraderie by the sound of it, even though there's that healthy competition. What is your take, like taking the pandemic out of the equation, because obviously that adds a lot of negative factors to it, but what's your take on the Aussie music industry as it stands at the moment? Are you optimistic for this long-term sustenance for a lot of bands who may be coming up at the age you yourself were starting off? Yeah, it's a different beast now. It's it's very different. Um, in some respects, um, it's kind of easier um, in the way that any band can have their stuff up on uh, iTunes and Spotify, um, whereas in my day you couldn't. You, you were unknown. You were unheard of. Unless you were good really good, um, you wouldn't even get a look in. You may not even get any more gigs if you're crap. So I think these days there's more available to a young artist, to, to a platform to present themselves, but um, possibly uh, many artists rely too much on the ease of technology and, you know, it does a lot for you. You know, you push a button and it does all this and you can tune your voice and you can put it in time. <laughs> so, therefore, there's, um, yeah, there's there's more more having a go at it, that's for sure. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, it must be amazing. Like, to, for me, if I were thinking when I was 20 that I could just upload my music and the whole world could potentially hear it, that would be incredible. Uh, it was a much harder task back then to do that. Well, and a harder task as well was coming from literally writing and creating music. I mean, it's no secret Sudoku is named after a synth effect, like, and it actually came from an effect like you guys were dealing with having to source everything yeah. you were using and it That's wasn't right. just we, all we at your fingertips. Yeah, I would spend hours learning um, every synthesizer I could get my hands on and learning how to make the sounds and make any sound that I could imagine in my head. If I 
I wanted it to sound like strings or I wanted it to sound like a laser beam or, you know, an explosion, or I made sure I could um, manipulate the synthesizer and get the sounds I wanted to get. And I rarely used anything that came with the synthesizer. I would always go, well, that's all great, but I'm doing this. <laughs> in fact, I, I kind of frowned at it when I would hear a sound that I knew was in a factory preset mm. um, that had been on a, on a current record. I would just sort of go, I, I know that sound. It's that one there and that's the next one. <laughs> so for me, I didn't want anyone to do that. I wanted all my sounds to be unique. But um, so, yeah, it was. Uh, there was more to it, that's for sure. Mm. And have you embraced the whole world of the digital workstations since the really hard oh, yards you've put in? Absolutely. I, it's the greatest thing ever to be able to be creative and not be um, stifled by um, needing funds to go to a big studio and producers. And, you know, if you can create music and your work at home, it's, it's incredible. You know, mm. like we couldn't do that. It was much harder to like the, the, the 1990s album, um, you know, I had a, a rhythm composer, a rhythm machine, Um and a very basic form of MIDI, what uh, musical uh, interface, um, to to play the keyboard if I needed to program. But mainly, it was played live, and and you just hit the record, and you just played the song from one end to the other. And then I might go, okay, now I'll now I'll do the bass, and now I'll do the keyboards, now I'll do some guitar. Sure, I could multi-track it, but it was it was just as you did it. Um, these days you can do a lot more. It's a lot easier. You can chop it up and loop it and fix it and, you know, I'll use this bit here and then I'll use it again over here and you can build it a lot more and assemble it, whereas back then you couldn't. You, you kind of performed it and that's how it was. Yeah, well, and the hard yards have carried over and I guess the same goes for your live shows, but one of the amazing things as we touched on really early on in this chat was that you guys will also be hitting the road and actually getting back on stage performing for the masses. Mm. I have read rumours it's going to be a two-hour extravaganza. Is there anything you can reveal about what we can expect <laughs> from the shows? Um, well, there, there are visuals. We're running synchronised visuals with the songs. Um, and so we've had a team help us with that. So that's going to be a big step up. Um, the show here being two hours, it's going to be a cross-section of our 40-year sort of history. And um, and I think for the first time we're going to do something very intimate in the middle of the show, different to what we've ever done before, um, which will present songs in a different way. So, And uh, and then we can get back into the, to the rock and roll. Yeah, nice. And tell me, as a man who has done this for a fair few years now, I'm not going to put an exact number on it, but we all know it's yeah. been a long time now. How do you yeah. maintain your live gig energy? What is the secret recipe to your onstage energy? Because I need some energy. One coffee doesn't cut it for me, so I'm secretly just trying to steal some tips for myself. But what's the secret? I think it's passion. That's what I think it is. I think um, there was a point in my in my career where I probably lost a bit of the spark, but once um, I got my personal life more in order and um, met my beautiful wife, Raquel, who, you know, my God, she, you know, she basically turned the band around and got it back happening for me and, uh, and, and got me to feel so much more passionate and believing in what I did. And that makes a massive difference when you walk out on stage and you're proud of the material and you feel confident about what you have. Um, if you lose that spark, well, then it becomes very routine and, the performances are, are going to suffer. So for me, it's yeah, it's it's the it's the um, the, the drive to want to keep doing it and loving to do it. I love performing. I love I love seeing a crowd smile and sing my songs back to me. And 
you know, they, this is the best reward. Yeah, and it sounds like, Raquel, we've got a lot to thank her for too because this album, the tour, like, God, what, what's she going to do next? It's <laughs> brilliant. Who knows? Well, she's, she's got me doing a book. so. Oh, you know, there you um, go. We've got the trifecta. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and with the whole live show thing too, I mean, when you guys came up quite quickly, like it was obviously a very swift change. You're in that era where everyone's hustling, you're playing every pub, every club, just chasing one show to the next. When you yeah. did finally get that expansion into the huge stage settings, did you actually have a preference? Do you did you still love that like intimate, sweaty nature of those smaller shows, yeah. or did you thrive on the big I, ones? I think I liked the bigger stage. I loved it, getting bigger, 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 and then it sort of got to a point where it's so big that it became a blur. Yeah. And then doing a few intimate shows, I loved it. I just thought, oh, it's so great. You're just right there with them, and you can feel the vibe. But um, I'd be lying to say there's, there's, there's nothing like the excitement of a massive crowd, you know, screaming your song back at you. It's uh, it's electrifying. Yeah. Well, I think the nice thing is you can kind of have that mix these days too, and especially with COVID, it's kind of meant that there's a bit more opportunity to do some slightly more intimate yeah. ones. And, you That's know, right. seated gigs aren't always going to work yeah. for everyone, but it's been quite you know, a nice experience. The balance experience. is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, the balance is great. And I think it's it's testing for yourself too. To, uh, you know, when you play to 10,000 people, you, you're not really identifying with individuals. It's just a big blur and um, a roar. Whereas when you do an intimate show, you can sort of look into the crowd and see the face of individuals and you can read a reaction and um, it, it, that's that's a unique experience in itself. Yeah. Well, I know there will be, probably be a certain song that will make the cut for this upcoming set. It would be remiss of me not to bring up Funky Town. And I know I really loved what you said about Molly actually being the one to introduce you to yeah. that. I absolutely adore that. but. Given it was such a huge hit for you guys, you know, obviously you had other hits in the mix as well, but if Pseudo Echo were going to do a cover song in 2021, what song would you do and why? Well, you know, I have a list as long as my arm of uh, potential covers at any given time. Uh, Whenever I think of them, I write them down, I go, I'd love to do this song. Nice. There are many things that I consider when I do a cover because um, firstly, you know, you, when you cover a song, you usually pick a song you love and you usually love it because it's really good. <laughs> it's, you know, it's produced well, it's it's sung well, everything's good. That's why you love it. And therefore it's a greater challenge to to reinvent it and do your thing with it. So I often look at a song and say, well, what can I bring to it? If I'm to redo this song without sacrilegiously destroying it, how do I do it? What what can I do? So that's a big part of it too. Um, but there are many songs that I have on a list. There, there are so many, um, you know, from current songs to, to really old songs. Sometimes it's a bit cheeky to do a current song, which is what we did back in the day with Funk Down. Mm. I mean, it was only five years after the fact. That, that's pretty close. Um, these days, I guess, they're a bit more bold. They do them, you know, before they even enter the charts. Somebody's covered your song these days. Um, but, yeah, I... So, yeah, there's nothing in particular, but I most days I'll play something on my piano and go, this is a nice song and I will just go my own way with it and uh, do my thing and then I'll go, possible, possible. And I might make the list and go, yeah, yeah. The possible pseudo-echo covers list. I like this a lot. I'm excited to Mm. see what may eventuate from this. Yeah. Um, And going back, I guess, to just before that whole era, before, you know, pseudo-echo had even really 
become on anyone's radar. You guys started off in high school, obviously, back when people are still trying to decide what they want to be when they grow up. And yeah. I'm still wondering that, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, was there a moment for you guys when you realised that there was actually a huge shift happening and this could be something you could pursue professionally or was it just a massive blur roller coaster? suddenly you're here, suddenly you're on countdown, suddenly you're in 2021? Mm. Well... It was always the thing that I was going to do, but I never really thought about it in the way of, I, I don't know if I thought about it as my career or or, or not. Um, you know, my mother, um, you know, she, she got me a few auditions, uh, when I say auditions, <laughs> interviews uh, for a job with the bank. <laughs> and um, they must have thought I was taking the piss, you know, in the, in the interview because I was so out of it. <laughs> I, was, I was on another planet. And... Um, you know, the, the questions they were asking me was just so boring. <laughs> I just, they, they knew that that was not for me. So that was, that worked out good because uh, I didn't get that job. And then, you know, my mother, uh, you know, hustled me off to the College of the Arts, the Victorian College of the Arts and said, look, if you're going to be a musician, then, you know, you should do it properly. And, and that, you know, can't just be strumming away and yeah, yeah, yeahing. So I went to the uh, audition at the College of the Arts. And that, that was an interesting experience. You know, I was about 14 years old and, and mum dressed me like mums dress you, you know. She put me in clothes that I just thought I looked hideous, you know. I just had these terrible shoes and these funny pants and this bad shirt and this tie. And, and I just thought, oh my God, you know, if I had my way, I would have been wearing sneakers and, you know, faded jeans and a singlet or something, you know. Um, and and uh, so I was all dressed up. And I, I felt ridiculous. And um, <clears throat> I had this guitar and um, <clears throat> it's hanging on the wall here. And um, it's, it's very rock and roll. It's locked on the wall, so I can't get it down. I would have. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's got stars and it's black with gold hardware and it looks very rock and roll. It looks like something maybe, you know, Paul Stanley would play. And um, here I am going for an audition at the College of the Arts, which is primarily was classical music. And so I'm walking in there with my uh, brown alligator skin, um, you know, crocodile skin, whatever they call it, uh, guitar case. Kids are looking at me, probably laughing, you know. And um, I go for this audition and there were all these old people in, you know, black and grey suits with grey hair sort of all around me in a circle. And they said, all right, um, you know, show us what you got. So I get my guitar and I think they were a little bit, concerned about the guitar when I took it out <laughs> there was a few looks of disapproval and um gave me an amplifier and it was the most terrible sound too you know I had my own sound when I did with my band mm -hmm. which was like Jimi Hendrix it was all distorted and this was just the cleanest terrible clinical sound and they just wanted me to play and I and I wasn't really accustomed to just playing the guitar I, I would play with the band so I'm just playing this guitar you know playing Stairway to Heaven or Black Knight or smoke on the water and, and you know, they were saying, me, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, fast as you like, you know, play whatever you want, you know, and I'm playing away. And I, I, they, there was this thing on the ground that looked kind of like a deck chair, a little mini deck chair. I, I didn't know what it was. It was it's a thing to put your foot on when you play classical guitar like this and you, you look all proper. But mm. I was, you know, slumped over with my leg this way and I just kicked it away. I didn't know what it was. And um, so, yeah, after, after a few minutes of playing, they said, all right, that, that's enough, you know. And I put the guitar away and then there was a bit of a powwow and, then one of the sort of the older, distinguished-looking, um, you know, principals came over to my mother and I and said, "Right, right in here." I was right there, and my mum's there. And he said, "Look, we we don't think your son's cut out for music. Um, you know, best best look for another path." <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm. So uh, it was like, you know, like, oh, <laughs> I'm dying, you know, like I'm just thinking. But, but it was, then there was also, you know, I guess there was a little bit of, you know, well, I'll show you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah so um, that, that was a bit hard. But, um, how did but you, yeah. It's, how you did know, you pick yourself up from that? I think I just was always determined. It was the thing I loved. It wasn't about whether I needed to do it for a career or I was going to please these people or these people. It was just for me. I just loved playing music, so there was no stopping me. I just, you know, I was always looking for other musos to jam with and put a band together and all this. So, And that's how the, ha- the high school thing started. You know, I just um, I had a band. I started to, you know, first it was just me with my 12-string guitar and that, that was good because... You know, I'd, I'd invariably play Stairway to Heaven or something like that and there'd be a big gaggle of girls around me and, you know, going, oh, it's beautiful. And so that, that looked like a was, well, it's not a bad job, that. And then I um, managed to find some other musos in the school and, um, you know, they were okay. And I said, okay, well, you, you can play, uh, you play the drums and you can play rhythm guitar. We needed a bass player. Um, our bass player wasn't, well, it wasn't much cop. He was better on rhythm guitar. So I said, look, you play the rhythm guitar, we'll find a bass player. And then one day I saw this guy and I kind of vaguely knew him. Uh, he went under the name Piero at school and uh, he was walking along and he had a case, a guitar case, you know, it looked like a long guitar case. So I figured it was a bass. And um, I only knew him vaguely, you know, he was sort of more uh, in the studious type of kids and I was a bit more of a rebel. And uh, so I said, hey, hey dude, um, what's in the case? And I said, oh, cool, you know, and he sort of opened it up. And it was this, you know, brand new Fender bass. It was like, who has a Fender? You know, like we all just had crappy uh, imitations of Gibsons and Fenders. None of us had a proper one because they cost about five times the price of our our little copies. And uh, so, you know, he's got this beautiful Fender Precision bass. And uh, so it's my cousin's, but he sort of gives it to me and said, I can use it whenever I like. I said, cool, do you want to be in my band? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was Pierre Giglaudi, Pierre Pierre. So yeah, you know, that's how he came to be in Sudoeca. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I feel like, yeah. He had, he had the right base. Yeah, the right base, the right place. Like you seem to that's continually right. have this moment of, yeah. And he was good too. He was pretty good on base. That's so a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm lucky that. <laughs> that's incredible. And look where it's led to. So to segue us into my final question to let you get on with your day, given you yeah, are sure. on the Green Room podcast today and you are about to head out on a brand new tour to celebrate this incredible new album, what is the one essential item that still makes your rider? What's What has to be backstage for you in 2021? Wow. You got any ideas there, darling? <laughs> we'll decide now. Uh, what has to be there? <laughs> uh, yeah, there are some things that will come to me. Um, I, I do like to have a small glass of port because um, that's a good emergency if you lose your voice. I don't know what it does. It does some magical thing to your vocal cords. So if I've uh, been chatting too many interviews all day or been a bit vocal and uh, just a slight hesitation in the high notes, I'll just have the little glass of port at the ready. Mm. So that's a, that's a good thing. I might steal yeah. that for my pod when I talk too much on my podcast. This might be a good yeah. idea. I'll steal Brian Cannon's <laughs> secret to talking more. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, Brian, it's so awesome not just to have 1990, the last album demos out in the world, to also have you out on the road and to have you out of lockdown. Thank you so much for joining me on The Green Room. And Thank you. cannot wait to see what happens next for you all. It's incredibly right. exciting. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Brian. What an amazing journey and some incredible stories from Brian. And clearly the pseudo-echo story is far from over. 
If you haven't already grabbed a listen to 1990 The Lost Album Demos, it is out now and it's truly a time capsule of epic proportions. So be sure to wrap your ears around it and inject some synthy goodness into your world. A huge thank you to Brian for joining me today and sharing his own world, as well as providing an excellent reminder to never give up if you have lost something important. It may very well be living in one of the boxes in your garage. On a side note, I have just moved house and I did not find any master demos to release an album, but I am holding out hope one day I might find something of value lurking around the place. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you've made it this far in the podcast, why not chuck the green room a review or a rating, tell a friend, tell your mum, hell, tell my mum. I'm not sure if she's set up to listen to podcasts yet, so someone please help me out there. And as always, you can catch up on all previous episodes and a heap of other shows ranging from sport to pop culture fails over at thepodcast.com.au. Have an awesome week and I'll catch you all next time. Podcast from the Handshake Agency Network, produced by Tiana Spita and Andrew Mast, with Pharrell D'Souza and Henry Gibson providing research. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker, executive producer Craig Trewick.